but when this happened, when I went into this hole, I honestly thought this is how I'm going to lose my life. And it was terrifying because I could see the water rushing underneath the ice and pulling me under. All I had was thoughts of my family, that I'm never going to see my kids again. I'm never going to see my wife again. I distinctly remember saying to myself, I'll do whatever it takes to get out of this hole. All of a sudden, it was like a lightning bolt hit me of my absolute priorities. I had a lot of time to think. And my boots, dude, they were frozen my feet. I didn't give a damn. I said to myself, if I lose my feet, I, I know I'm going to see my kids again. I'm going to see my family again. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. My guest in this episode, Ray Zahab, is such an accomplished explorer and ultra-distance runner that just listing the bulleted highlights of his accomplishments would fill an entire podcast. He has won numerous awards and honors, was featured in the documentary film Running the Sahara, produced by Matt Damon, and risks his life each time he goes out on an expedition. But Ray does not set out on seemingly impossible journeys for accolades or social media likes. Instead, he does it to inspire others. In 2008, Ray founded the organization Impossible to Possible that aims to inspire and educate youth through adventure learning, inclusion, and participation in expeditions. Youth ambassadors are selected from around the world to participate at no cost in amazing and educational expeditions. Since its inception, Impossible to Possible has completed 14 grueling expeditions around the globe. I have never met anyone quite like Ray. His enthusiasm for life and passion for adventure are infectious, and his tenacity and courage are incomparable. In this episode, Ray shares stories of adventures, his challenging path to overcome addiction, and his love for his daughters, for whom he would endure anything. Ray is many things, humble, inspirational, generous, likable, and compassionate, to name just a few. He regularly pushes his body, mind, and spirit to the limits to show that no obstacle is too large, that even the seemingly impossible can become possible. I hope you are inspired by this episode of Salish Wolf with Ray Zahab. Ray, welcome to Salish Wolf. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so stoked to be here. Oh, it's, it is an honor. It truly is. You are a man of so many extreme accomplishments, and I'm excited to jump into chatting about those. First, I just wanted to acknowledge our uh, common connection, which is my sister-in-law, Jen Sager, who adventure Amazing. racer. Yeah, she, she connected us. We've, uh, it's a good timing for this because my family and I have been watching on Amazon Prime, the Eco Challenge Fiji, because Jen, of course, is in that race from last year. So we've, uh, the last few nights, we've been immersed in the adventure racing world. So it's good timing to sit down and chat with you. And me being a huge Jen Sager fan, they should have been filming her team the whole time, is my, is my opinion on the, that's my editing opinion of that show. <laughs> yeah, you know, it would be nice to see more of her. So, Again, thank you for doing this. I've got so many questions for you. You are such an accomplished explorer and ultra-distance runner and so much more. I thought a, a good place to start for me would be to find out how far back do we have to go to find a pre-ultra-running Ray Zahab 
And what did life look like for you then? Well, it's a great question. And, and to be honest with you, it's like a nice round number. <laughs> it's, it's 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, uh, 2000, so leading up to 2000, the last years of the 90s, I, uh, you know, I was heading towards 30 and um, I was just living a life that I was no longer satisfied with. And um, I was not a healthy person. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, sometimes two packs a day, depending on how much I was drinking. Wow. And yeah, I just was not a healthy guy and I was not a athlete even growing up. It just like, I grew up on a farm. I grew up on a hobby farm that my parents had in the Ottawa Valley. It's a, it's a beautiful place, but you know, so we're running around on the farm, bailing hay, riding horses, all that jazz, but I wasn't, I could never hit a puck. I couldn't throw a ball. I had anxiety when it came to gym class. I was not a, um, I just wasn't a physical person really that way. And then, you know, as I, as I got older and barely got out of high school, you know, dropped out of community college, I did not complete my studies there. I, um, I just became very sort of unhappy and, and I was trying to get too, I don't know, melodramatic. Is that the right word? I just sort of got to this point in my life that I could not see myself aging or getting older. I just, really didn't have any meaning or passion or anything like that. And I, and I honestly, I looked at the world kind of like glass, totally empty, <laughs> you know, wasn't even half, wasn't even half empty. It was totally empty. Yeah. And so, you know, my brother, who's this John and my younger brother, he'd gone through sort of a, my only brother had gone through a like a life transformation and he became like an Ironman triathlete and a, and a trail runner and a, a rock, avid rock and ice climber. And, um, all these things that people do out here where we live. And so he was like right into all this stuff. Eh? And he was like getting fitter and more confident. And it was just like, you got to remember, this is all pre Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, it was like, you did, you just were doing this stuff, right? Like, I mean, he was randomly doing this cool stuff that I'd never been exposed to. And it just like, was like transformational for him. And I thought, wow, maybe if I did the things he did, my life would be different. It had nothing to do with wanting to be, um, you know, an explorer or a runner or any of that jazz. And so, it, and I'm warning you right now, I tell long stories, but I'll try to shorten this one up. And no, so that's fine. through his inspiration, <laughs> so, through, so through his inspiration, I, I took me three years to quit smoking. It was like literally the hardest thing I've ever done. And I just I just said this to someone the other day that the hardest things we do are very relative to us as individuals. Right. And so for me, and I, and I get to speak all over the world about what I do and stuff. I'm very fortunate that way. And in the non COVID times, you know, and, um, I tell people that, you know, hardest thing I ever did was quit smoking. And I've had people come up to me and say, big deal. I quit in like two days and it took me like three years. Right. But anyhow, and that's the point, right? Like it's just, so I started to, it was the first lesson that adventure would give me and the outdoors would give me is that, Hey, it comes down to you. It's like you, it's, it's decisions you make. It's the things, the moves you make in your life are very individual. And so, so anyway, I changed my life and I started doing the things he's doing. And we spent three years, I became an avid ice climber. That was my winter sport. I loved it. Um, you know, I got more doing more complicated routes and, and, and all that jazz and, summertime I was mountain biking like just constantly on my mountain bike I raced I, I worked my way up and I, I was racing as a expert elite Quebec Cup Series and started racing 24-hour solos started doing really well at, at, at that I mean I finished second actually one year at the UCI World Masters and 24-hour solo and did well at the 24 hours of adrenaline and blah 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 that became my I loved mountain biking and then one day I read an article about ultra running in 2003. And that's kind of, I guess you could say where things changed for me because I didn't see myself as a runner. My brother and I are physically very different people. He's very tall and, and thin and I just not like him. And so he was an avid runner and I just figured, well, I'm not built to be a runner, so I won't run. And I, I'd done eco qualifiers. I adventure raced like crazy in the heyday. Um, but mountain bike racing and adventure racing are not running, you know, it's just, it's just a different thing. Right. And so I, um, I read this article, it was about the Yukon Arctic ultra in, um, it takes place every year in, um, in the Yukon in the middle of winter, it was a mile race I was reading about and other distances. And I, um, 
was mesmerized by the people in this article that I was reading who seemingly looked physically not that much different than anyone else on the street. Like, I mean, they just looked like regular people, but they were doing something extraordinary. And I knew that something was there. Like, I just didn't know what it was. But how is it that these people, you know, had, had the, you know, the gumption and the strength and the, and the courage to go and try and do something like this? Like, knowing that potentially they're probably not going to finish. I mean, that whole thing, right? And it's like, why the hell would you do it? So I knew they had to be learning something about themselves that was, that was really incredible. And so I wanted to know what they knew. Entered that race, long story short, first running race I ever did, 100 miles in the Yukon and went there and hammered my way through the Arctic, barely, you know, barely making it a few times. But I, not only did I finish, but I, but I won it. And I'd never won wow. anything in my entire life. Right. And, and I, and I, that day that I finished that race in first place, I can remember the game. This was something I was talking to somebody about the other day was strange feeling. It was to even be doubting that I actually won. Like I must've made a mistake. I must've went off course. Cause there's no way that I am capable of winning anything like this. I'm not good enough. Right. And, and the, the truth was, is, is I, is I did, I did it. And when I did it, when I crossed that finish line, any pain I had and all that, it was all gone. Like it was the strangest thing, dude. It was the strangest thing to feel so great after running a hundred miles. Right. And I thought maybe I should just do this for the rest of my life. Like maybe this is the answer. Maybe I need to go and do more of these things to learn how I can feel so amped up. And, and, and really Todd, honestly, it, it became sort of a thing in my head that it wasn't about me. And it was something that I realized, you know, just after, not long after, like in the days following the Yukon Arctic, that the human beings underestimate themselves and that I spent 30 years of my life talking myself out of trying to do new things. Cause I was always afraid of what someone else would think. I, I was always afraid of failure. I was always afraid of shit not working out. And this was the first time, really, truly the first time that I just didn't give a damn. Like I was like, I, I spent all the money I had. I was broke to go and do this thing. And it gave me like this notion that human beings are, are like are capable of so much more than we think we can. And so that set in motion, everything. That's how it all started. That's how running started for me. Yeah. Well, quite a journey. And Backing up from that, you had this three-year ordeal with with quitting smoking. Were you involved in any of the mm-hmm. the treks or the mountain biking at the time when you were still a smoker? Yeah, dude. I was my so my brother. So this was like ninety seven, ninety eight. It's a long ago. It's hard for me to remember, but you know, I would go and I would try to go and ride with him. Like I was instantly enamored, right? So I would try and go ride with my brother. I would try and go go on these long hikes. We even tried an adventure race in that time period. Can you imagine? Like one of the very first adventure races in Canada and big ones. And we tried to do this thing. Obviously, you know, obviously we dropped out, right? You know, and, and it was all due to me and, and another buddy of mine who, who were on the team. We were both a basket case. My brother was fine. And, um, were you, you know, taking like, smoke breaks during drink. the race? No, I didn't. Honestly, you know what? I made it to like, I think we got through it like two or three days and then before we bailed and then, then, but then when I got back to like civilization, I was like smoking my face off like a train <laughs> steaming down the tracks. Right. But I, uh, you know, I eventually I, I, like New Year's Eve 99, I set the day, I said, that's it. Like, that's going to be my day. And, uh, January 1st, 2000, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be free of, of it, you know, and I'm, I'm going to change my life. Like that was the deal I made myself. And I said, if I don't do it, then I'm never going to do it. And I'll just end up partying myself to death, you know? Right. And was that the successful moment? Was that the end? That was it. Yeah. That was it. New Year's Eve 99. I smoked my last cigarette and I never looked back. And And I don't even ever get tempted or any of that, you know, like it's just a weird thing, you know? Was the, obviously your brother was extremely inspirational. Was it though, was it that adventure race attempt that helped you to realize how much it was holding you back or was there something else? No, 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 because you gotta, like it was such a different time, right? Like this is 20 years ago. So you, you, you know, no one cared. Like that was the epiphany, the true epiphany within the Yukon. 
like up to that point, I just wanted to change my life and do what my brother did, right? Until 2004 when I did the race. So mm-hmm. like the whole time, like when I was when I was mountain bike racing, I loved mountain biking. I loved it and cross country mountain bike racing. So I don't know how old you are. I'm 51. You were riding 26 inch wheels, so 42. So I don't know if you were on the 26 inch hardtails riding gnarly stuff. You have no rake on your fork, so you basically had to learn how to exit over the bars and land on your feet. Because you pretty much went over the bars on every ride you went out, right? Like, I mean, I just love the thrill of mountain yeah. biking. You know? My mount, my mountain bike is officially an antique. It's a two thousand, no, sorry, it's a ninety six GT Avalanche <laughs> hardtail. Oh my god! Yeah, we used to call that the backbreaker. It. It's got that triangle. <laughs> it's got that triangle in the back. Yeah, the, the, yep. the, the extra stiffens the back. <laughs> the back of the aluminum so it just hammers your vertebrae you yeah. get off that bike after a ride and you're three inches shorter yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I did i did upgrade to a different trail bike but i still have that bike and i still ride it it's uh fond memories for me but <laughs> i digress you being from bc i i had a two rocky mountains that i raced on i had a vertex team issue and i had an element i think it was called team issue full yeah. suspension and dude you know, I know, I know who I sold those bikes to. I'd like to get one of them back and like restore it. It was just such a, they were just such beautiful bikes, those Rocky Mountains. Are they still painting them by hand and stuff? Like, they were all hand painted back in the I day. I don't know. <laughs> yeah? I don't Anyhow. know. <laughs> now I'm riding a, I ride a felt decree and uh, I love my felt so much. It's crazy. It's like 160 mils of travel. You basically, I was at Mont Saint Anne. And I, I don't ride any of the like double black diamond downhill runs, but I was riding a couple of the enduro runs at Mont Saint Anne, and you know they have a World Cup downhill there in, in Quebec, and there was a, there's a run beside the World Cup downhill, which is like not the World Cup with the 25 foot gaps and all that. And I was riding down that with my bike, and like at 40k an hour or whatever, thinking to myself, the technology of these bikes is insane yeah. compared to back in the day. And anyhow, oh, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> Like this, this will be my last question on the the cigarettes. But I'm I'm just intrigued by where you came from to to where you are now. But what do you think led you to smoking one to two packs of cigarettes a day? No, my parents smoked. I'm okay. a child of the '70s. My dad was a doctor, and he smoked a pack a day, dude. Wow. You, you know what I'm saying? Like that was yeah. the, that was you know the, my parents smoked cigarettes in the car when we'd go on road trips to see our cousins 12 hours away in the States and the window would be open to crack. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's my generation. People smoked in movie theaters. People smoked on airplanes. You know, it just, it was a different time. And I think you just, you're kind of exposed to it. And, uh, Hey, listen, I'm not saying anything. I, my parents were amazing. My brother and I had an amazing childhood. It was ideal. Any train wreckage was totally, we owned it. You know, it was us, you know? And so, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just something that happens and you like, you know, I grew up in a small town, right? And what do you do when you're 14 years old in a small town? You go to parties and get loaded. That's what we were doing, yeah. you know? And it, it certainly is not, I am certainly not trying to glorify that in any way. It's just the truth, you know? Right. Yeah. So since that 2004 Yukon Ultra that you won, kind of the watershed moment for you, from what I can tell, you haven't looked back. You have been pushing the envelope for the last 15, 16 years. What's that experience been like for you? So you had that first one, which you, you couldn't even believe you were you had won it. Now when you go into races, are you expecting to win? Well, let me clarify something. So I don't, I haven't raced since 2006. So between 2004 okay. and 2006, I was racing ultras all over the world. I was fortunate enough to win a couple more races and, and I had a great time, you know, I either placed well or I won or I completely imploded. I gave it everything I had. and I learned so much about myself. And then in 2007, I had the opportunity, uh, the idea I had and my buddies had to run across the entire Sahara desert. So a distance of 7,500 kilometers coast to coast. And we achieved that goal. We crossed through six countries. It took us 111 days. So we ran approximately 70 kilometers every single day for 111 days. It was the average where it's what yeah. worked out to. And um, it's made into a documentary film by Matt Damon and um, pretty, like directed by this Academy Award-winning director, James Ball, and U2 gave music to it and Pearl Jam. And so funny because nice. I remember 
<laughs> you know, 1989, listening to 10, you know, Pearl Jam 10, thinking to myself, oh, it's like my favorite album. I love this. And I played that CD until the CD was wrecked <laughs> in my car. And then fast forward to 2007 and the, the documentary Running the Sahara is being screened at the Toronto Film Festival and sitting in front of me, like we're in this small theater and Matt Damon's like announcing this documentary and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I'm with my wife and, and the other runners and, and they're, they're better halves. And there's a head in front of me, like the back of this dude's head. And I, I don't know who it is. I'm like, I totally recognize that guy's head, but I don't know who it is. Like it's like a, like a head of hair that I recognize. And I found out later that Eddie Vedder was sitting like wow. literally right in front of me and saw running the Sahara of which music they gave to. How crazy uh, is that? That right? is anyhow, so cool. That's a whole other thing. But so, so anyhow, so then, so then I did that expedition and in those 111 days, I learned, I, 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 I can't even put it into words. I, I, it became very abundantly clear to me that through adventure, we can learn extraordinary things about ourselves, about life, about people, how closely connected we all are on this planet, how we're more the same than we are different. I mean, you know, there's just so much that came from running the Sahara. I made lifelong friends, you know, that our, our, uh, Expedition leader, uh, Mohammed Iksa, uh, among the Tuareg people of the Sahara Desert. I mean, this man is highly revered. He's, he's just this total badass. And he'd been to Chelsea and stayed with me in Quebec. He's wow. come to visit. I mean, we've, you know, we've, and so anyhow, so anyhow, we, you know, when we finished that expedition, I said to myself, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And I, I didn't know it wasn't about money it was about it never has been actually Todd you know it's always been about um just going with my gut since the Yukon honestly it really has and sometimes you make mistakes but I mean they're not really mistakes because you learn from them right so right so the Sahara led to all these other expeditions that I've done and now I'm at about 17,000 kilometers covered on foot more than that actually on foot on expeditions all over the world, ranging from, I've been across Antarctica to the South Pole and supported. I've been in the Canadian Arctic on multiple expeditions. I've uh, ran the length of the Atacama Desert, the Gobi Desert, the Patagonian Desert, and so on and so forth. Namib Desert, you know. Incredible. So. It seems like a lot of your runs are either in extreme cold or extreme heat. Are those two environments that you thrive on? Yeah, they are, but also because if I'm going to take the effort to go into the Canadian Arctic, I want to see it in its most arctic -y. You know what I'm saying? I want to be there in January or February, and I want to be able to take a snapshot or shoot a video or however it goes down and collect that content, upload it so that schools and students, because that's a big thing for me, yeah. is connecting my expeditions to students and schools. And I want them to feel what I see. And I want them to see that light in the sky at minus 60. What does it look like? Conversely, being in the middle of Death Valley, completely off-road, in the middle of July when it's 50 degrees Celsius, and this, this nighttime sky or the air, what it smells like at that temperature to be able to describe that, or being in the driest place on Earth in the Atacama Desert in the middle of summer when it's 50 plus, when there's literally nothing lives and described to a classroom okay, nothing smells like this, nothing looks like this, nothing, you know what I mean? And, and so it's very, it, it, one of the drivers for what I do is, yes, in the extremes of the climate, but I want to be in the most deserty time of year, middle of summer, and I want to be in the most arctic -y time of year, middle of winter, if I can, if it's possible. Wow. It's not a steadfast rule, but yeah. I, I try to, to stick to those timelines, you know? Yeah, it sounds so crazy, and... And yeah, amazing, amazing. You, it, it, it also sounds a bit romantic when you speak of it. And I've spent time, I lived in Alaska. I, I lived in near just south of the Arctic Circle. I know what it's like to run in minus 30 and below weather. It's nuts. It really is nuts. And that was when I'm going out knowing that I can always turn back and head back to shelter. You're going out in these, on these adventures, in some cases unsupported for days and days and days on end, covering hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers. There must be some really tough times during that. Can you yeah, talk about any sure. of I mean, those? You know, it's, 
Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been many. I mean, interestingly, I don't um, when I'm posting stories, uh, you know, through social media or whatever, I don't dwell on the negative stories or you know what I mean. Like, I just I I'm always trying to extract and share the amazing shit that happens when I'm out there on these expeditions, right? But at mm-hmm. the same time, uh, you know, yeah, there's 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 been frostbite, there's been parasites, there's been uh, dehydration, there's been, uh, uh, hypothermia, there's been almost losing my life in rivers. There's been, <laughs> there's been everything, you know, chased by wild boars on two continents. There's been all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff that has happened over the years. But, you know, when I'm looking at an entire expedition, I'm not necessarily dwelling on those things or thinking about those things, you know, I'm mostly focused on, you know, what's around that next mountain. Like, I mean, any of the, like Atacama Desert, you know, I was solo, uh, 1200 kilometers, resupplies every 20 to 50 K mostly off road. And I'm crossing through the, it was always a headwind dude. And it, like a headwind, like a hot headwind, <laughs> like not a, not a cooling headwind. And I'm just hammering through these mountains and there was salt in everything. And I ended up with a, a blister. I, I, I'll occasionally get them. And I ended up with this massive blister on my, on my foot. And it was it was a disaster. I mean, I, it was, it became infected. I had a fever. I almost stopped my expedition. It, you know, and, but, but I was able to pull myself out of it and, and keep going, you know, and interestingly, by the end of that expedition, that blister healed, I cranked my mileage up again. because I was able to convince myself that I could, I could get past it. Right. And it, the blister, blister sounds like big deal. You got to see this thing. There's a video of it on, on the line somewhere. It's like a grapefruit on the bottom of my foot. Well, not that big, maybe a small Mandarin orange, but, um, <laughs> it's not supposed know, to be there. I, it, there. There's been a lot of tough times, but you know, whether I'm solo or whether I'm with someone else, you know, like Seeds and I have done, uh, Jen, that's Jen Sager, by the way, that's my nickname for it. But Seeds and I have done many projects together. When you find the right person to do projects with, um, you gel and then you can lean on one another. And Jen and I have had a lot of close calls. Oh, I'm sure she's told you about some of them, you know, up in the Arctic. But, you know, when you're alone, you're dealing with the same things, but on different terms. So, anyhow, I'm sort of rambling here, but it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, alone in the Atacama, a horrible blister, seeing this one person who I would see, my buddy Bob, every 20, 50, whatever K, um, you know, and that was who I leaned on during that time. I knew at some point I would see him, I'd camp with him whatever, at the end of the day, you know, after I get across this next mountain that's in front of me or, or being on expedition with Jen and something going wrong and she can lean on me and I can lean on her with the frostbite, right? You never know. You can say, you can turn to that person and say, is my face frostbitten? Cause you can't feel when it happens. I mean, when you're in a cold wind like that and you know, I can look at her and say, yeah, you've got, your nose has gone white and then she can cover it. Right. So you're leaning on people during those times too. You know? Yeah. During the toughest times, what keeps you going? Well, there's, there's a game without sounding too dramatic. When I finished running the Sahara in 2007, uh, my wife and I and my buddy Bob started an organization called Impossible to Possible. And essentially what we do is take young people, 16 to 18 years of age, in groups of four, five, six, uh, mostly four and five, on expeditions around the world where they go and do what I do for a week or 10 days. They go on these expeditions to the Amazon, the Arctic, Tunisia, Rajasthan, wherever we are, and they share a curriculum with tens of thousands of students who are following along. The entire program is 100% free. And through my expeditions, I guess you could say I and the great partners that I have, I have some amazing supporting partners. That's how I fund those youth expeditions. It's the main way of funding the youth expeditions. So I'm able to develop partnerships and new partnerships through my own expeditions um, that helped to fund and fuel my passion, which is impossible to possible. And I'm a volunteer in ITP, by the way, my wife and I. And so at the end of the day, if you said to me, what's a driver? Well, I'm focused. I'm thinking about, you know, I got to get this done. Like I want to get this done. I want to do this for ITP. And also I want to get done today, like any day, symbolically speaking on an expedition, because at the end of the day, I will probably be having a sat phone conference call with a classroom where I'm going to be uploading content this by satellite 
and schools will be patched in. And so I'm thinking about those kids at the end of the day. And then if you're asking me in the toughest of times in the days when I wake up, whether it's a hot expedition, which are typically supported or minimally supported or a cold expedition where I got to get up and get out of my tent. And I'm thinking, I just can't see myself putting the kilometers down today. The way I do it, the strategy that I employ is I think about a day in my life at home with my daughters who are, you know, very active in trail running and skiing and all that. And my wife, who's an ultra runner, I think about a day on a weekend where I wake up, brush my teeth, you know, get out of bed, whatever, brush my teeth, go downstairs, kids are eating breakfast, get them with their trail shoes on. My wife, Kathy, packs up, we go, you know, down the trail, and I relive that entire Saturday morning, you know, step by step. And it just takes away the time. And it works really well to keep me going. Speaking of your daughters, and also impossible to possible, obviously inspiring youth means a lot to you. Where did, well, before we get to your daughters with impossible to possible, where did that inspiration come from? What, what made you want to help the youth? Well, when I, when I was like 15 in high school, whatever, I like, dude, I honestly spent more time in the parking lot drinking in the van that we had. <laughs> I really, we really did. It's like a Saturday, almost like a Saturday night live skit. My brother and I drinking beers in the van. But, um, you know, I, I just remember not caring about anything that was going on in school, you know, and I, um, but then I, I run across the Sahara desert and I was so voracious in my appetite to want to learn about the culture of North Africa, um, the economics of North Africa, the culture of North Africa, the people, the, the water crisis in North Africa, all of these things that I get, like everything, the ecology, the history, everything. And by the end of the expedition, I'm like, whoa, wait a sec. I'm on an adventure and it was all about experiential learning. And I thought, geez, if you could do this for kids, what a great way to learn subjects. And that's how, that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And with your own two daughters, how have they changed your outlook when it comes to these expeditions? Are you ever out there thinking about getting home safely to them or uh, every what sort time. of impact? Yeah. Every time, every time. My daughters now are old enough that they, like we just finished a fast pack into 12 and nine and they, they run a lot, you know, they trail run a lot. Probably some of your listeners would be like, that's too much. But my nine year old, you know, has done multiple 30 K weeks. And where we live, it's very hilly. So you're climbing, you know, for every 10K, you climb on average 1,000 or 1,100 feet of vertical. So, you know, up and down, you know, up 1,100 up and you go another 1,100 down, let's say, right, over over the course of, of 10 kilometers. And so, you know, they, they're into it. They Nordic ski, they ski race, they cross-country ski race in, in the winter. They love this stuff. And so now we're you know, we're doing fast packing trips and stuff and they, they want to do trips with the old man. They want to go up to Baffin and do a ski trip up there. They unsupported, um, you know, they love adventure, which I'm really stoked about. And so I, you know, I'll tell you when I'm out there with them doing stuff, I just, it's like heaven for me. It's where I get my most pleasure from all of this stuff now is doing stuff with my kids. Yeah. And what is the draw to Baffin Island? You've been there many times, done many expeditions across the island. I read it's what, the fifth largest island in the world. And is it the entire thing in the Arctic Circle? No. You see, so where, where I, on my last expedition, for example, I started way above, two-thirds was above the Arctic Circle. And then you okay. just pop below the Arctic Circle. Just You're just like a fraction of a degree below the Arctic circle mm-hmm. where, where I've ended those trips. But let me tell you in winter, it's cold everywhere. But you know what it is? It's the people. I mean, I have a lot of friends, Kikik Karjuak. I have a lot of friends there. Um, one friend in particular, Bill Yarnikuk, who I've been doing projects with for many years. And um, I mean, I just, I, I, he's an amazing man. I've learned so much from him. And every time I see him, you know, there's people in your life in, in your, you know, long, far away friends that you don't see, you see maybe once a year. And when you see them, you just immediately, you can't help it. You smile. You just can't help but smile. And that's how it is. Um, 
for me with Billy and, and his family. And so I love going up there and then in Pengertong as well, I have friends. And so I love being up in that area, but I've been in different areas of the Arctic too, you know, and I've been to other regions of the planet, um, you know, cold weather regions of the planet, like for example, Kamchatka in far East Russia, I did an unsupported expedition there. Siberia, I've been a few times. And so, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I just love these different environments and I, and I love the friendships I build in these places. I'm curious how your physical body over the last 20 years has changed. And if now as you're, you're in your 50s, are you having to, to make modifications or are you going as strong as ever? Well, I am. I'm going, uh, you know, I would have to say as, as stronger than ever because the reason is, I mean, it, it, here's, the, here's the crazy thing. So I've lived in Chelsea where I live. I've lived here for, my goodness, going on 20, I, I moved here in 2000 because I knew I wanted to, um, I knew that I wanted to uh, train full time and do the things that I, that I was so passionate about. Right. So this was the, the spot where we landed. Then we eventually bought a house here and uh, we live right on the trail now. And so it's amazing. We can just, you know, walk out the back door and, and we're on the trail. But, uh, I, you know what? I totally forget the question. What was the question? again? <laughs> Your body. How crazy. Uh, oh yeah, my body. There you go. <laughs> so you can tell the old brain. My brain Good thing I didn't ask about the mind, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Geez, this is a total zinger on me. So, so I guess um, there's a trail. There's one specific trail or the spider's web of trails that are out here. There's one trail that I use as a fitness tester for me, and it's uphill. It's uh, 10 kilometer stretch, very technical, and I try to top my time every year. And when I was racing ultra marathons in 04, 05, 06, and I was competitive. I know what my times were on this 10K route. And I'm telling you, I am at least four to five minutes faster now. Now, for sure, I know where every single rock is on this trail because it's something I do once every couple of weeks to check my fitness. But the fact of the matter is at 51 going on 52, I feel much better than I did at 35. Maybe it's because I came to everything late. But my body has adapted to what I do. And Todd, I used to identify myself as an ultra runner. And I see where things are at now in the sport. And I'm so impressed with what people do and, and the running. And I, you know, I'm more of an explorer than, than I am an ultra runner. I ultra run to train for the expeditions that I do, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. But it's, you know what I mean? It's a different place, I guess, where I am now. And so running and, and skiing are the primary ways and fat biking and mountain biking are the primary ways, depending on the season. I train to be in shape to go and do these things that I do. The projects that are left that I want to do, like I've crossed most of the large deserts, and um, you know the deserts that are left. Oh well, you know I'm I'm maybe down the road, but it's not really. I've never done anything for what's the what's the how many views am I going to get if I run across this desert? I've never cared. It's like I, I wanted to cross the Gobi Desert, always wanted to, so I did it. So now the things that are left. There's some gnarly Arctic projects, and there's a couple other projects, and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to jinx it, that I really want to do um, before I wind down. But I feel fitter, and I feel better, to answer your question, in the longest way possible than, uh, than I did when I was younger. So, What sort of body care are you doing? Nutrition, physical care for your body? What, do you, what needs are you looking after? Well, I, I train, um, like I train, uh, uh, more or less for the expedition that I'm doing. Right. So I train specifically for specific things. So when I am uh, going to the Arctic, for example, like uh, January, last, last January, I did this solo project from Kikiktar Drak across the Davis Strait and then across Baffin. I knew that I was going to be going when it was extremely cold and mostly dark. A little bit of, you get a little bit of the sun comes up, hangs in the sky on the lower end of the horizon for a couple, three, four hours and then drops back down again. But most of the time it was dark or, or, or you know, um, sunsetty looking. So it was going to be super cold. So I train my body to pre- process a lot of fuel, but most of it is fat because fat, because I'm hauling everything, I was self contained. My sled had all my stuff and my food fat, you get nine calories per gram, right? So I 
over the course of the six months of training for that project, went to more of a high fat diet, you know, specifically for that expedition. Then other expeditions that I train for, you know, if they're, you know, desert expeditions where I know I'm going to need to process a lot of glycogen in order to get the expedition done. Then I'm, you know, and, and I'll eat, for example, we, we ran the length of the Namib Desert, my buddy Stefano and I, 1,850 kilometers in summer 2018. And when we did that, uh, we knew that what would be accessible to us, believe it or not, would be rice, potatoes, and canned beans. So guess what I ate for six months leading up to it, right? And taught, <laughs> wow. like, forced my body how to process it. Now, when I'm not training specifically, when I'm not in the lead up to an expedition, I eat mainly a Mediterranean diet. I'm half Lebanese. And mm -hmm. so that part of my body, I believe that, um, that when we uh, eat in ways that were raised from when we're young or our ancestors ate, I think that it just, I know there's no science behind that. I'm going to get like in total trouble for saying that, but, but I really believe that when we eat the way that we're like our bodies are used to and adapted to a certain style of eating. And so we always ate that kind of food when I was growing up. So it works really good for me. You know, it, a lot of vegetables, raw vegetables. Um, I do, I'm not a vegetarian, but when I'm on Arctic expeditions, actually it's another thing I become vegan on Arctic expeditions. So I take no meat with me or very little. So anyhow, so the, so my nutrition is that, but my, re my recovery is the thing when you turn 51 or when you turn 50, um, aging athletes performing at a high level is a new thing. And I think that there's a lot of science that's going to be done on athletes. I think that the one plus is I have wisdom and I have a base, right? So I know, I know, and I've learned a lot and I'm doing this stuff now. And so I'm able to maintain, you, you look at a 50 year old now and look at a 50 year old in the eighties, it's a completely different thing. Right? It's a completely different thing. And we know so much more nutritionally and recovery-wise. But I say to people, recovery is super-duper critical, right? And so I take that even more seriously, my recovery protocols, whether it's wearing a – I have a Compax. It's called Compax, and so it's um, a muscle skin machine for recovering my legs to supplementation, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about recovering better so I can train harder. Yeah. Well, and, and to go back to what you said about eating a diet that is in the lineage of what your ancestors ate, I think there's complete logic in that. And I think that that is, in essence, how many of us or all of us should be eating is what, what our bodies are genetically adapted to eating. So I don't think you're going to yeah. get in trouble at all for saying that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, and I, and I think the more we research, the more we're going to learn. But anyhow, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you're always learning. You're always learning about yourself and, and the world and feeling connected when you're out there. What is something on a recent expedition that you have learned about yourself? Something on a recent expedition that I learned about myself? Um, I would, well, listen, I'll tell you the most important lesson that I learned. It happened in 2017, so I know it's not that recent, but... Uh, Good enough. Uh, it was a 2016, 2016 or 2017. I was, um, I won't give the whole backstory because it's just it's too long of a story, but suffice to say, I was in the middle of nowhere, Stefano and I on an expedition in the Arctic. And I was, I was moving ahead, scouting ahead because I had more experience on some ice and I, and I was on this river and I, in a, you know, mountain Canyon gorge for lack of a better term. And I broke through this ice and, tons of current almost pulled me under. I was in the water for two minutes and, um, again, long story short, I got myself out of this hole after being struggling for two minutes and was obviously soaked up to my neck and then got out of my clothing. And, but when this happened, when I went into this hole, I honestly thought this is how I'm going to lose my life. And it was terrifying because I could see the water rushing underneath the ice and pulling me under. And, all I had was thoughts of my family that I'm never going to see my kids again. I'm never going to see my wife again. And I distinctly remember saying to myself, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, to get, to get out of this hole. It was like, it was like all of a sudden it was like a lightning bolt hit me of my absolute priorities. Right. In, 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 in from that perspective in my, in my life. Right. And so I get out of this hole and I roll around and so I'm laughing. I'm laughing, dude, and, and an uncontrollable laugh. Like it was like a, 
I have lost my marbles laugh because I couldn't <laughs> believe that I survived, right? Like I just could not believe I was like, and I had a uh, Canada goose had made me a, a custom down suit for I, I drag it with me on all my Arctic expeditions it's for emergencies. It's a minus 70 down suit. I had, I pulled it on. I had it in my sled, pulled it on, but I didn't bring spare boots, right? Cause you're on an expedition. You're not thinking you're going to need them. So my boots are soaked and they froze to my feet, dude. They, those boots froze my feet within minutes. Wow. We had a down, down trek through this entire frozen river, like down through this little canyon and then find a heinous way out of this canyon to get to a point where days later we would meet up with our photographer who was uh, a few days later, who was coming from the other end of this pass we were trying to cross and he was photographing caribou and he was with some Inuit hunters up there and they had to come and pick us up on snow machines. Right. But at any rate, I had a lot of time to think and my boots do, they were frozen my feet. I didn't give a damn. I said to myself, if I lose my feet, I, I know I'm going to see my kids again. I, I don't care. I'm going to see my family again. Is that the, if that's the price I have to pay, take them. I didn't care. Like that's wow. where my head was at. I'm just being honest. Right. And, and so anyhow, I didn't, my, I had massive frostbite in my feet and my toes and everything, but I, but I didn't lose my toes shockingly. And, um, but you know what, you know what the lesson was I learned? I was laying in my desk. Stefano and I were laying in this tent in a snowstorm after this had happened. And at a point where we knew they could eventually reach us on snow machines and stayed in this tent for 24 hours and laid there and just talked. And I was hypothermic, like, or very close to hypothermia, fighting it off, like, like willing myself not to completely lose control of my faculties. And we just talked and talked and talked and talked. And, and I said, you know, dude, I had this epiphany again, where I realized that I had spent so much time in my life still entertaining relationships and trying to maybe, you know, I don't know what it was. Uh, the best analogy I can give you is this, that I had friends that I would communicate through email, let's say, and the only time there was a communication from these people was when they needed something. I was the only one that was ever communicating. I was the only one picking up the phone, calling these friends and saying, Hey, how's your family doing? You know, I was not, you, you know what I'm saying? It was a non-reciprocal relationship. And all of those relationships ended on that day. It was like, wow, like we can disappear in an instant. Like life is not to be wasted. Right. And I committed in that tent, you know, it's definitely on the top of this conversation, these deep philosophical conversations that I'm saying, you know what, when I get home, that circle of friends just shrunk, not in a judgy way, but it's like, I just never emailed those people back. And most of them I never heard from again, you know, but I just, my, my group, my close tribe of the people, my family, my kids, my, my, you know, my immediate friends that I that care and, and, and it's meaningful relationships. I no longer was worried about stuff that you can't control that is so unimportant in the big picture, right? Like yeah. who cares how many Facebook likes you have? <laughs> gives a shit at the end of the day. I mean, is that really, you know? So it, it, it became, you know, who cares if you're working so hard to maintain a friendship that, that it's just not happening. And so that was what I learned. It, it just, it put clarity, it re-injected clarity into my life and taught me not to sweat the small stuff, right? It was, anyhow, I know that's wow. a little bit long in the tooth, but that's, that's what happened. That's incredible. And that's such a beautiful lesson and clarity to get out of such a harrowing experience. And I agree with you completely. And that most of the, the people in my life who are closest to me now were not necessarily people who I was close to 10 years ago. I didn't even know them. But as I have changed yeah. as a man, I've started to attract different people to me. And I see the value in, in relationships that are reciprocal, that are kind of symbiotic. And, and those are the ones that, as you say, they're, they're worth putting our energy into and the others, if they're not fueling us, it's, we, we shouldn't need to feel guilty about moving forward, so to speak. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like cleaning out your closets every spring, Yeah, you know, or whatever, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, 
you know, we truly human beings create a reality for themselves to a certain extent, you know, and uh, I believe in karma. I believe in these things. And I, and I think that the energy that we put out there is what's reflected back, Mm. you know, and if you're, absolutely, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes in our lives. We, We all do. Right. It's just being able to, um, move forward in your life and just do the very best you can with the best intention and have authentic relationships. And what I love so much about what you just, what you just said is that it gives us knowing that the energy we put out is what is reciprocated back. It gives us full accountability. And through that accountability, there's liberation because we're, we're, we no longer have to be in the victim mindset that things are happening to us. No, things are happening for us because we're putting out the energy for those things. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's easy, you know, uh, pursuing sort of like with the, where I was before in my life, the negative outlook on things like, you know, uh, if I woke up and it was a cloudy day in 1998, I would look outside and I'd say, oh, God, it's probably going to rain today. Now, I wake up on a cloudy morning and I look outside and I'm thinking, well, at least I won't get burned by the sun. You know what I mean? That's where yeah. my, I'm looking at things with the glass half full and I can't help it now. But that negative aspect and negative outlook, and I'm not talking about hugely negative, bearing a little bit negative instead yeah. of a little bit positive, saying 51% negative and your life is 49% positive. But that, that is like a warm sleeping bag, dude. It's so easy to slip into that. It's so easy in these times, especially, that we look at um, the state of world affairs, et cetera. And it is yeah. very easy to curl up in a sleeping bag of negativity and just get comfortable with it. Sometimes it's hard to be happy and you have to work at it. And I worked at it for a really long time until it becomes sort of on a cellular level who you are. Yeah. Right? And then, and then you just can't help yourself. You, you just kind of look at things with a silver lining. Anyhow. I was, a, I was about 19 or 20 when I moved to Fairbanks, Alaska, just for a semester of school. And I had a roommate who was on the rifle team, and he went on to become a, a national champion and an Olympian. Uh, his name's Dan Jordan. And he had such a profound impact on my life because I was not a negative person, but sometimes I would say little things about something negative. And he would always catch me, and he would... You'd say, what are you complaining about? Why are you complaining? And I would, I would have to stop myself and think, wow, that was a complaint. I didn't even realize that when I looked outside and said, wow, it's really cold, that I was actually saying it in a negative way and complaining about it. And yeah, when I left Fairbanks, I went on a, a trek with a, a high school friend of mine. We went hiking and backpacking and hitchhiking around the state of Alaska. And about two weeks into that, I called to check back in on my friends who I left in Fairbanks and I found out that Dan was, he was my climbing partner and I found out he was out rock climbing and he fell and he broke his back and he was now paralyzed. He's a paraplegic. And I was just crushed by hearing this news. And I'll never forget, I think I phoned the hospital, Dan comes on the phone and I'm, I'm just, I'm beaten. Like, I just can't believe what has happened to him. And I'm, and I'm realizing too, that as my climbing partner, I probably would have been out there with him. And Dan gets mm-hmm. on the phone and, and the first thing he says to me is, how's your trip going? And, and I still get choked wow. up today just thinking about it. This guy always had a positive outlook on everything. And even in the hospital, Knowing he's paralyzed, he was not giving up on life. He was not dwelling on the negative. He went on to become uh, the coach for the rifle team. They won multiple national championships. He went on to be a Paralympian medalist, I think a gold medalist. Just such an inspirational guy. And sorry, I know that's a bit of a, a, a side no, that's story. A, that's but... an incredible story. That's an incredible story. And, you know, there's, there's an example of someone whose spirit can't be broken. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, every human being you know, there's limits, right? I mean, and, and, but everyone is an individual and somebody like that, those are the teachers in life. You know what I'm saying? Those are the people 
that are so they're so illuminated that they um and, and I've had those people in my life as well that you wonder if that was you, could you have you know, could you respond in the same way? You know, I'm not so sure I could, you know, yeah. but I, I know that those people who take things to another level are so inspiring that what they provide us with is a beacon of direction on where we should take ourselves. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like, you know, where we can go, like aspire to be, we're never going to get there because I mean, just in you telling that story, it's incredible. And he, he's like, uh, at just a completely different level, but you know, he's, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's like, he's the white house. You know what yeah. I mean? And you just, you know, you just try to get there. As close yeah. As you can, you know? Beacon of inspiration for all. And, and I've got to say, you're, you're very humble and what you are doing is, and, <laughs> the quest that you've been on and the struggles that you've overcome. It's incredibly inspiring and, and also a beacon for others. So uh, I can't uh, acknowledge enough your, your feats and accomplishments. What... Well, I appreciate that. But you know, Todd, it's uh, I'll just end that, that part by saying, you know, these are ones that I've chosen, right? These are yeah. things that I've chosen. Mm-hmm. And it's a big difference, you know, between me choosing to do what I do and others having the choices made for them and still being resilient through it. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, anyhow, but uh, moving on, sorry, you were going to ask something and I cut you what, off. What, what got that? you back out on another expedition after nearly losing your life and thinking you were probably going to lose your feet? Cause I know you, you just this year completed another Arctic solo expedition. Yeah. So I, yeah. And then I, and between, this Arctic expedition, I, you know, I ran the length of the Namib desert. I crossed death Valley in summer, west to east over the two mountain ranges, 8,000 feet over the Panamint, uh, 5,000 feet over Amargosa. And that's from below sea level because we crossed the bad water basin. So, you know, I've done many projects since that time. You know what? I never, um, cause people ask me all the time, you know, do you, do you think, what's the one you think back about? Honestly, it's another sort of philosophy that I followed, followed is I, I don't look back constantly and rest on my laurels, you know, I, or try not to. I don't dwell on things that have happened. I learn from those things. I take the lessons and I appreciate what has happened. But I don't, um, it doesn't take me a long time to sort of, so, so this will surprise you. That when that happened, when I went in that river, and that was the first part of a three-part expedition. So that was, I was on foot in uh, Northern Labrador when that happened. Then I was gonna be on skis across Baffin Island, and then on fat bike through the Northwest Territories from Wrigley to Fort Good Hope. All of them uh, unsupported or self-contained, all of them in February, back to back to back, one airplane to the next, you know, like how I told you when I ran across the three coastal trails, right? When I ended up on the West Coast Trail, same idea. Just do one after another. Dude, we flew through, switched out the gear after that, I felt like a bag of crap. My toes were all swollen. I put on my double ski boots and up we went to Baffin and I skied across Baffin. I'm telling you, it almost killed me to do it, but I got Gosh, it done. And then incredible. we immediately left from there and we flew to the Northwest Territories and then we sat like 500 kilometers from, from on the ice road from Wrigley to uh, Fort Good Hope. Wow. You know? So I got it, it done. I still got the thing done. <laughs> this happened in the first day. Day one. Wow. When that happened after the helicopter drop. That's so when what, that happened. What yeah. happened to your feet during the rest of that? Like were they recovering oh, they were swollen or and blistered? Oh no, they were blistered and swollen and they stayed blistered and swollen until we, and extremely painful until it was over and then they slowly but surely um I got the feeling that all the skin came off and then I got the feeling back in them. You know, they still aren't 100 percent, but uh, you know, more or less, the feeling came back after six months a year. You are a madman. That is that is insane. It's a, oh, I've heard a crazy <laughs> stories. Trust me, it's so <laughs> impressive, but just it's nuts. So, with that in mind, Ray, what are you afraid of? Um, you know, what am I afraid of? That's a really good question. I am afraid of. Uh, well, if you're talking about like in the physical sense, what am I afraid of? You know, I, I'm opening it I'm up to, of, to whatever. 
Yeah. Well, look, I've had parasites. I've had some really bad parasites, you know, and I will be in some jungle projects again as COVID passes. And so, yeah, I'm afraid of definitely getting another nasty parasitic infection. And it, it just, that was brutal. It lasted for years. But I mean, I, so I, yeah, that I, from a physical perspective, I fear that, you know, I guess I fear in some ways um, that, you know, am I, am I doing everything I possibly can to remain authentic to what it is that I do and also be able to take care of my family, keep our foundation going. Do you know what I mean? Like I fear, I guess more the not performance aspect, but am I doing the right things? You know, if I was to fear anything, it's that I would in some ways not give my daughters everything they need to eventually make their own decisions on their own terms about their own adventures. And when you come to our house, we have, no awards. I have a Guinness World Record, not on the wall. I, I have a meritorious service cross from the Governor General of Canada and other awards, et cetera, magazines, everything. All of that is in a filing cabinet. None of it is on the walls in our house, nothing. I have some tons of Indigenous artwork that's been given to me from uh, various uh, uh, Indigenous peoples and friends from all over the world, so that's on our walls. But there is no there's no Ray expedition stuff on the walls. And it's because my girls know what I do, but I want it to be normalized for them. You know, do you get what I'm saying? I don't yeah. want it. So I fear, I fear someday them thinking, Oh, I, you know, I, I got to do that. I, mean, right. you know, I don't want them ever to think that But at the same time. I want to keep them motivated. So I fear the balancing scale. I fear that. That's what wow. I fear. Yeah. Wow. That's profound. It's such a delicate balance. And yeah, for sure. It I, is. I but honor you, know you in that. It's it, you know some people some people want to some people want to be parents. Some people don't. I totally get. It. I have a lot of friends that don't have kids. Don't want to have kids. They have a certain lifestyle. They don't want kids. I knew, dude, even in my train wreck days. Like I was a babysitter when I was a kid. I've always loved kids, <laughs> and I always knew I wanted to be a dad. And you know, my wife said it's because I never grew up. Like I still act like I'm 16 years old. But I've always wanted to be a dad, and now I'm a dad. Yeah. So I want to do everything I possibly can to nail that, right? And um, everything else I've done, everything, and I mean it when I say it, pales in comparison to uh, just being out on that trail run with my girls, you uh, know, and that. then yeah. being stoked about it. Yeah. Like, honestly, like the feeling I get from it, that's a true sense of accomplishment. Yeah. Me, you know? I have, I have a seven and 10 year old, so I know exactly what you mean. And, and, more and more, and it warms my heart so much to hear men say how much, well, not just how much, to say that fatherhood is the most important aspect in their lives, taking care of our kids and inspiring them and giving them opportunities. It's it's such a beautiful thing. And every time I'm out with my kids doing something that we love, whether it's rock climbing or paddle boarding, or my kids and I do karate twice a week, we just finished a couple hours ago. And I just, I love that opportunity to be with them and it is it's it's the best no matter what yeah and i hear you on that and and it's and it's um you know if 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 being a dad is your gig to be you know blessed with to be blessed to have kids right and it's just such a it's something that i do not i take i've taken a lot of things for granted in my life this is something i don't take for granted yeah you know what i mean i just don't so yeah. Speaking of which, I'm going to have to, uh, I hate to do this because it's been so much fun talking with you, but I have to go and start to get dinner ready for these Sounds kids good. because they literally will eat my arm off, like <laughs> quite literally. Can, can you uh, just give us some of your details where listeners can learn more about you or connect with you if that's an option? So I, I, have, a, I have a website. It's just my name, raiseahab.com, and there's links to my charity, to Impossible to Possible and all that from there. And I'm on obviously all of the social media, LinkedIn, Facebook. I have a public page with a check mark beside it, a blue, blue check. And as I do on Instagram, those are the pages that I'm on pretty much all the time. I have a Twitter account. So I'm, I'm just kind of like a little bit of everywhere. So I'm easy to find. Great. And is there another expedition in the works? There is. There's multiple expeditions in the works, but I'm not going to tell you where they are. I'm not going to tell. All right. Until they happen. You know what? I just want to tell you why, because I'm like, I'm like a total non, I just, it's a superstition. 
That's... So I had a buddy who played professional baseball in the U.S. Um, and he was a really well-known baseball player. I know nothing about baseball. And um, it's another story for another time how we became friends. But he had all these things. Like he would touch his gloves, touch his gloves, touch his gloves, touch his gloves before going up to the plate. But 50 times he touched his gloves. And I think that's the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> Fast forward 10 years. And now one of my superstitions is I never stay where I'm going. I don't even say anything about it until I know 100% I'm going the plane tickets are booked. The COVID is gone. Everything is good. <laughs> I'm going, okay, now I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, it's my superstition. Hey, if it's working for you, go with it. Well, Ray, thank you so much. What a, what an honor it's been to sit down and chat with you and hear some of these stories and your outlook on life. You are an incredible inspiration. And well, thanks buddy. And the same back to you, the same back to you. And I hope that we get to do this again down the road. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Maybe we'll do it in person sometime too. I'd love that. When I come out to see Seeds and Norm, I'll we'll definitely get together. Please do. Please do. All right. Well, all the best to you, Ray. All right, buddy. Catch you later. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye bye. Thanks for listening to Salish Wolf, brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions. To learn more about Ray Zahab, his expeditions, and his organization, Impossible to Possible, visit rayzahab.com. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for more information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. My next retreat is a bow building retreat on November 25th through 29th, 2020 in Powell River, BC where I will lead six men on a life-changing inner exploration while we carve our own English longbows. With only six spots available and some already spoken for, this retreat will likely fill quickly. Feel free to connect with me so we can discuss how this opportunity could impact you or go straight to the website to reserve your spot. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and wellness, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at PacificRimCollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming podcast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up a residence on a tiny island off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.